Let's open the Holy Scriptures to the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 54, in the Pew Bible, page 781. 781. We're reading from Isaiah 54 because in our text in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus, in dialoguing with the crowds of Jews, He quotes a verse from Isaiah 54. And so we want to understand better what the Lord is doing when He does that. We're going to read all of 54 and then the first three verses of 55. So the Word of God comes here through Isaiah, and it's a word of encouragement about the future restoration of Jerusalem. So in the opening verse, sing, O barren one. The barren one is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, capital of Israel, and it's about the future when uh, after the exile, during the exile, Jerusalem had been stripped away of its people. It had become barren of children, but there will be a future time under God's blessing when the city will be filled again with God's people, and that's what 54 is all about. Hear then this word of God. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you." O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. 
If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Last week, we began uh, picking up the series of sermons on this gospel, and I was able to preach to you from the verses 22 through 35. Uh, I see there, were, there are some folks here this morning who weren't here last week, so if you missed last week's sermon, um, perhaps you could catch it on YouTube sometime, but we're just going to pick up the thread of last week's message and I'm focusing on preaching verses 36 through 47. So if you're coming in a bit cold, you will need to read verses 22 through 35, uh, perhaps uh, on your own at some point. But let's pick it up then at verse 36 where we left off. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He's speaking to a crowd of, of Jewish believers in Galilee and more and more they are showing that they do not believe what he says. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and here comes the quote from Isaiah 54, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
And that's the portion we'll focus on this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when you meet people who don't believe in Jesus? People who don't believe that what the Bible says is true, that it's God's Word. If you are explaining to someone who Jesus is and how He came to help sinners like us, and someone pushes back and says, I don't believe a word of it, How does that affect your faith? And now imagine that it's not just a single person pushing back, but a group, even a large crowd of people. Imagine you are serving in our church booth at the Ancaster Fair, and I encourage you all to consider signing up. Imagine you're there and, and, and something of a little crowd gathers around, a bunch of people start to listen to you explain in simple terms, how the Father sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the debt for our sins, and you see the crowd of people rolling their eyes at you. You hear them whispering to each other and guffawing amongst themselves, making fun of you. That wouldn't feel very good, would it? It might even shake your faith. I mean, if, if, if everybody around me is against me, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe I am the crazy one who believes in all this stuff from 2,000 years ago. Well, brothers and sisters, then let our text of this morning strengthen you and embolden you in the truth of that gospel, for no one faced opposition more than our Master and Savior Jesus Christ. And he faced it head on. In fact, Jesus expected unbelief. He expected opposition, and we should too. Rejection of his message, rejection of himself as Messiah was something that he understood would happen and that it would continue to happen right until the end of the world. But in the midst of that rejection, Jesus wants to assure you and me and all of His people that His saving work, it moves on. Opposition, unbelief in Christ doesn't slow down or mess up God's saving work, for God guarantees His work. He guarantees that all who come to Christ will receive eternal life. That'll be our theme this morning. As I bring you this Word of God, all who come to Christ receive eternal life. We'll see two things, the Father's gift and the Son's work. Well, as we saw last week, the unbelief of the crowd dialoguing with Jesus was showing itself more and more as the discussion went on. You recall how they had chased after Jesus from one side of the lake to the other, because they wanted more of what they had received the day before, that miraculous bread that Jesus had made. They were into the bread rather than what the bread was pointing to. Remember, it was a sign that pointed to Jesus as Savior. And when Jesus challenges them to believe in Himself as the one sent from God, they dare to demand of Him, we saw that last week, to perform a sign 
which would prove his claim as if the miracle of the bread and the loaves and the other miracles of healing and casting out of demons as if they had proved nothing. Jesus, give us another sign, they said. And when the Lord speaks of bread coming down from heaven that gives life to the world, the people are still thinking about some kind of physical bread and they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Give us this miracle bread. They're fascinated by the miracles of Jesus, but they do not see in Jesus the one who saves them from their sins. They're stuck on the signs. And so in our text, the Lord Jesus speaks to them head on about their unbelief. He brings it out into the open and confronts them with it. Our text 36 to 47, is kind of like an interlude. That's why I, I chose these verses. An interlude in, in the Lord's longer talk. And in verse 35, we had that last week, He says, I am the bread of life. And then if you look at 48, He repeats that, I am the bread of life. And from 49 onward, He expounds on what that means, that He is the bread of life. But in between 36 to 47, He's talking about their unbelief. He confronts them, verse 36, But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That's a reference to verse 26. These people had earlier seen Jesus perform many powerful signs. They themselves had eaten the bread and the fish that Christ had produced out of nothing. They had heard Him proclaim Himself to be the Son of Man who gives food that endures to eternal life. But the people, they don't believe Him. Let's just pause over that fact for a moment. The people don't believe Jesus. Does that make sense to you? I mean, this is Jesus. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, standing there in the flesh, doing various miracles, preaching the gospel of salvation, and they refuse to accept Him. This is the world's best preacher, right? Nobody's been better. Best evangelist. And yet he endured some of the worst rejection. What's going on here? I mean, if Jesus can preach His heart out and show unmistakable divine power and people still won't believe, what chance have we got? with our weak and imperfect conversations about Christ with our neighbors or people at the fair or in the barber's chair or even in this very weak preaching that comes from the pulpit, what chance have we got if Jesus can't do it? Do you think if Jesus had changed his technique that the people might have come to faith? What if Jesus had decided to take a different approach? Do you think the outcome would have been different? Well, remember what John, the gospel writer, had told us in chapter 1 when he described the Word who became flesh. He called him there the light of men. And then he said, the light, it shines in the darkness. What does John mean by darkness? He's describing human nature. Darkness is the hardness of heart toward God, and that describes every human being. 
we humans are born rebels who have this natural bent against God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians describes humanity as children of wrath, alienated from our Maker. He says that every human is dead in trespasses and sins. So it's an ugly truth, but we have to admit it. We, we humans have dark hearts. When it comes to loving God, we don't love God. When it comes to loving our neighbor, we don't love our neighbor naturally. God, or John tells us that even among God's covenant people, the Israelites, there's this default darkness. For when the light of the world came to his own, he says in chapter 1, his own people did not receive him. That's how John introduced the gospel, and all throughout this gospel we see exactly that. The Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel, preaching and teaching and performing signs which would prove in any court of law that He is who He says He is, and yet, time and again, the people turn their noses up at Him and walk away. So what's going on here in our text is actually the default response of humanity. Both Jew and Gentile, non-Jew, our dark hearts don't want to hear that we are helpless, in need of a Savior. Just tell us what the works of God are, and we'll do them ourselves. That's what the crowd had asked Jesus only moments before. What are the works of God? We'll do it. We'll save ourselves. We'll be our own rescuer. All of that thinking is quite natural to us. So the question really is not so much why do the crowds of these Galilean Jews not believe Jesus, but the question is rather why some actually do. Why do some come out of their darkness since our hearts are filled by nature with sin and selfishness, how is it that anybody anywhere comes to faith in Jesus? Is there some technique, is there some method we must master that will trigger a believing response in, in an unbelieving neighbor? Is there a formula I can follow to win back my straying daughter, my errant son, my unbelieving relatives, my old friend? Can I say just such and such a thing to bring them back? Well, no, brothers and sisters. It's got nothing to do with technique at all, does it? For who would have had a perfect technique if not Jesus? And our Savior Himself knows that the conversion of hearts does not depend on what He says or how he says it, or just when he says it. For look at what he says about this in verse 37. <clears throat> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast out. He says it again and elaborates in verse 44 after the Jews grumble at him in their unbelief. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father sent, who sent me draws him. The conversion of hearts, the changing of mind, the, the belief in Jesus does not depend on us 
saying the right thing at just the right moment, but it depends on the Father, on the Father's decision, on the Father's plan, on the Father's gift to His Son. That's what Jesus is saying. And He's very passionate about this. All who come, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father is clearly in charge, isn't He? The Lord Jesus underlines that in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus is here on His Father's mission, and His Father has sent Him to work salvation for a very specific group of people, a group chosen by the Father at some earlier point and gifted to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come. They will be the sheep of my pasture. Paul speaks the same way in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. And a little later, Paul adds, in Christ, you also, you believers, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see, beloved, how from start to finish, salvation is God's work, totally. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they conferred together in eternity past, before creation. The Father, He planned our salvation. The Son came to earth to purchase our salvation, and the Spirit was poured out to bring us to faith and seal us, to guarantee to us salvation. We humans don't go out and find God. We run from God by nature, but God comes and finds us, and God draws us to Himself. He draws all those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. And they will come, beloved. Christ is very pointed and very emphatic about this. All that the Father gives me will come. He repeats it in verse 45 by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned, all will come. There is no one on the Father's list that will not hear, that will not learn from the Father and not come to Christ. Not a single one on the list will be missing. Jesus is emphasizing this to a crowd of unbelieving Jews, covenant people. But among that crowd are also His 12 disciples and probably some of the believing women who regularly traveled with Jesus to support Him in His ministry. So Jesus knows there's faithful believers among the unbelievers, and He wants to assure them and reassure them that despite the rejection they see and feel from the majority all around them, He wants to say to the faithful, don't worry. My Father has given me His chosen people as a gift, and they will hear, and they will learn, and they will come. Don't worry.
Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, which we read. Whenever he quotes the Old Testament, he's all, he always has the fuller context in mind. That chapter we read is a beautiful picture, a passage picturing the, the future restoration of God's people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will no longer be barren. Jerusalem becomes a symbol of the church in the prophecies of the Old Testament. The wider context in Isaiah is that God's people, Isaiah had to announce that, they were just about to be punished by God for their rejection of Him. They were about to be defeated by the Babylonians and dragged off into exile. That's sort of the first half of the book of Isaiah. The people were to be exiled because they had refused to listen to God's Word. They were unbelievers as a whole, but in their redemption and restoration, which Isaiah talks about in the second half of his book, God will so work in His people that all your children shall be taught by the Lord, verse 13 of chapter 54. What does he mean? Well, he's saying, in other words, the people in the future will not be like the people of the past. The people of the future will have a massive change of heart. Instead of rebelling like the old Israelites and chasing after idols like their forefathers, they will submit to their God. They will draw near to Him and worship Him only in sincerity. That's the picture of 54. And yet, not all the people will be like that. That's why we read the first verses of Isaiah 55, where the Lord calls out to His people, Come, everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. Come buy wine, come buy milk without money and without price. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. It's an invitation. It's the call of the gospel. Salvation is not given to every single individual Jew, but it is given to those who hear God's invitation and come to Him, who respond in faith, and isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing here in John 6 and elsewhere? It's like Isaiah 55, writ large, come to life. Jesus has said, come to me, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Take me in by faith. Feast on me. For I and I alone can quench the thirst of your heart. I and I alone can satisfy the hunger of your soul. How will I do it? By taking away the guilt of your sin. Nobody else can do that. I and I alone can give you peace with your maker. Come to me, says the Lord Jesus. He's channeling Isaiah 55. And then he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. That's why. That's the reason why anybody comes to believe in Jesus. And that's also the reason why every single person chosen by God the Father will come. This is the wind in our sails, brothers and sisters. As we stand at the booth at Ancaster Fair or speak with our neighbors about salvation from sin, 
this fact that the Father generates salvation for His chosen ones and brings them. This is what gives us confidence. It's not technique. It's not timing. It's not well-worded, eloquent messages that, that convict and convince and convert. Don't get me wrong. Of course, we should try to present the gospel with as much clarity and simplicity and with freedom as we can, and we certainly should show the love of Jesus by our words and deeds. But brothers and sisters, the conversion of unbelievers does not rest on us, but on the Father. It doesn't come from us. Not you, not me. We cannot open somebody's heart, but the Father can, and the Father does. We are just His instruments. He does the drawing, the pulling, the prompting, the changing, the giving of faith. As we speak a word, the Spirit goes to work. And the Father, through the Spirit, will draw to Christ every single last person that He has given to His Son. So, beloved, go out there. Have your conversations about Christ Jesus and salvation. Have those conversations with quiet confidence. Sign up, please, for a turn at the fair booth. And don't be afraid of goofing it up. On the one hand, let's not be surprised or taken aback that we encounter unbelief and rejection. The Lord Jesus did. The apostles did. But on the other hand, be assured that despite you and me and our weaknesses, God is busy drawing in His elect, and they absolutely will come to Jesus. They'll come. And when they come, Jesus will never cast them away. That's what He says. The Lord, in verse 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes, not just Jews, not just from within the covenant community, people coming to faith, them too, but also from outside the church, also from what Scripture calls the Gentile world. A few verses earlier, verse 33, Jesus had said that he had come to give life to the world to the world, to people from all nations, from all backgrounds. The Lord had foretold the same in Isaiah's prophecy. A few chapters after what we read, chapter 60, Isaiah says, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Your sons, they shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip from the the coastlands shall hope for me. That's far islands far away. The ships of Tarshish, which were the ships that went to the ends of the known world, they will bring your children from afar. The Lord's talking about gathering in the peoples from all tribes and nations. People like us, we come from those tribes and nations, right? Anybody, anywhere who comes to Jesus and puts their faith in Him will never be cast out. That's the Lord's promise. More precisely, Jesus will never cast out such a person from His kingdom. 
That implies that Jesus has the authority to cast out and the authority to keep in. That's part of the Son's work. Certainly, the Lord Jesus came to give His life on the cross as payment for sinners, absolutely. But He only grants forgiveness to those who truly believe, and He will be the judge of who truly believes. Remember the parable of the talents that Christ spoke? Remember the servant who disobeyed the master and hid that single talent he was given in the ground, didn't work with it, didn't do anything with it? The master came, and the master represents Jesus, and he judged the servant to be wicked and unfaithful and ordered his other servants to cast the worthless servant out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He cast out the unbelieving, unrepentant servant. That's what happens to false believers to unfaithful servants, to people who pay lip service to Jesus but don't have a heart of true faith, they will be cast out. But all those who genuinely come to Christ in humbleness of heart, in sincere repentance, trusting that He has paid for all their sins, every one of those kind of people who come, they will be fully accepted by the Lord Jesus and welcomed into eternal life. The Lord wants to assure His disciples, including us, that our salvation is secure. It's set. Listen to what He says in verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. And then verse 40, and that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. He wants to be crystal clear with us. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, if you truly believe, you have eternal life right now. And you will never be cast out into the fires of hell. That's what Christ means by I will lose nothing of what I've been given. Jesus is not talking about misplacing someone like the way we might lose a set of car keys. No, here the word lose has the sense of perishing in judgment, like when Jesus used the same word to speak to Nicodemus in chapter 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. There's that same word should not be lost, you could translate, but have eternal life. Jesus will not allow you to be destroyed in the fire of God's wrath, but Christ will give you everlasting life in the joy of God's love. That's what you have by faith. That joy is yours today. It's something you feel. You may feel as you know the Lord Jesus, as you have His Spirit living in you, as you, as he says later in the chapter, eat Him by faith, consume Him, as it were. It's a joy that will only grow and deepen when we die and go to heaven 
And then later when we are raised up to, uh, from the dead, maybe you noticed how our Savior stresses that several times over in our text. Listen to what he will do for you and for me and every one of his chosen people. Verse 39, I will lose nothing of all that the Father gives to me, here it comes, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, all who believe in me should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Says it again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That makes three times. He actually says it a fourth in verse 54. Four times in just a few verses, I will raise him, I will raise her, I will raise you from the grave. When Jesus starts repeating something, brothers and sisters, we have to listen with both ears, hard, and take it in. It's meant to assure us as much as possible that He gives us life, fullness of life, ultimately on that last day, but it starts now. And isn't that a great relief? When you think about death, It's not pleasant to think about dying. We have a deep instinct to cling to life, right? And that's fine. That's good. That's how God created us, with a will to live. And most people prefer to avoid thinking about death, especially their own death. It's too painful to think about it. It's too shocking. It's too depressing. It's, it's too scary to think about dying. But unless Christ returns first, death will come to each one of us. That's the, the harsh reality of this life. But what if you take that harshness and lay beside it the gentle, powerful, unbreakable truth that even now you possess eternal life in Christ, which means that when you draw your last breath here on this earth, you will continue to be alive with Christ in heaven because eternal life is what? It's eternal. It doesn't stop. There's no disruption. So if you've got it today, it cannot be interrupted with physical death. And if it disturbs you now to think of your body or that of a, a loved one lying in the grave, deteriorating in the grave, if that bothers you, and it bothers me, then is it not a powerful tonic to drink in Christ's fourfold promise? I will raise him. I will raise her. I will raise you from the dead with your flesh and your soul united to your flesh again. I will raise you up and you will live forever with me. That's the tonic. That's the antidote to the bitterness of death. So, beloved, when the time comes for you to die, 
when the Lord indicates in some fashion that it is your, your, the number of your days is up, you may struggle with that because death is the last enemy, as Paul says. But in the end of that struggle, it's okay. For you have come to Christ already now. The Father has drawn you to His Son, and the Son has given you eternal life today, and He will raise you up on the last day. Let that take the fear out of death and departure. Let it fill you with peace in the day of your struggle. To live already now here is, is to live with Christ. To live there in heaven is only to live a better life with Christ. So rest assured, if you have come to Christ, you will live forever. Amen.